In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus told his disciples, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Considering this verse, why do Oneness Pentecostals insist that everyone must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? Dr. David K. Bernard responds to this crucial question next on Apostolic Life in the 21st Century. Welcome to Apostolic Life in the 21st Century, a podcast dedicated to helping modern-day believers live out the teachings of the first-century church. This podcast is part of the teaching ministry of Dr. David K. Bernard. Dr. Bernard has dedicated his life to studying the Bible and helping believers apply its message to their daily lives. In Apostolic Life in the 21st Century, Dr. Bernard answers your questions about what the Bible teaches and how those teachings apply to everyday life. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Oneness Pentecostals frequently quote Acts 2.38, where Peter commanded his listeners to be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. We also point out very frequently that every baptism that was recorded in the book of Acts was done in the name of Jesus. The problem, at least for some, is that the words of Jesus seem to contradict the book of Acts. I'm talking specifically about Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus told his disciples, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. How do we reconcile what Jesus said in Matthew with what happened in the book of Acts? That's a very important question. And for those of you who want to study further, uh, I have a small book called In the Name of Jesus, and I devote a chapter to that very question. Um, Also, I have a book called Understanding God's Word, which gives you some principles of interpretation. And I'm going to, and and explains why these principles are valid and how they come from Scripture itself. And I will use those principles in my answer here today. So, uh, but first of all, let's just say this. Sometimes people, will say, well, I would rather take the words of Jesus than the words of Peter. Well, that's a mistaken argument from the beginning because we believe all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. And if you want to be practical about it, Jesus didn't write any of this personally. So in Matthew, we have Matthew writing, and all the 12 apostles were there hearing the words of Jesus. In Acts, you have Peter preaching, but Luke is the one who recorded it. Again, you have all 12 apostles there. So if uh, Peter had been mistaken in what he said on the day of Pentecost, Matthew was right there and was standing with him supporting his message. So Matthew should have said, wait a minute, Peter, you, you got it wrong. You know, uh, Let's fix this. Also, if you look at historically, the gospel of Matthew, even by the most conservative authors, uh, was not written until probably the A.D. 60s. Uh, so whereas the day of Pentecost, the events occurred around A.D. 30. So in the book of Acts, you had the early church baptizing for many years in the name of Jesus Christ before the Gospel of Matthew was ever written or disseminated. So in a historical sense, it would have actually been the other way around. People all their lives would have been baptizing and have been baptized in Jesus' name, but have grown up in church. And then suddenly this gospel starts getting circulated, maybe in the 70s, 80s, 90s. They would say, wait a minute, that's not what we believe. 
Uh, so, so actually, you you would say that the the events and acts uh, would have been disseminated first before the record of of Matthew. So, uh, my point is there is not to disparage Matthew at all, but to say we have to look at both the Gospel of Matthew and the Book of Acts together and find a harmony. Now, we do believe that since all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, all of it's true, all of it is in harmony. And we're not looking for a contradiction. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, let's take a, a look at Matthew chapter 28. What is actually going on here? Okay. One of the first things that you would look at is the context. That's a basic principle of interpretation. You never take a, a statement of Scripture in isolation and try to figure out what it means without considering the total context. So in the immediate context, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. You know, as God manifests in the flesh, he was uh, authorized by the Spirit to do what he was doing. And now he was sharing that authorization to preach the gospel with his disciples because he was soon to be gone. So in verse 19, the key verse that you're looking at, Matthew 28 and 19, he says, go ye therefore. In other words, notice the therefore, because I have all power, I'm sending you. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. And actually, the, the Greek word that is translated teach in the King James means to make disciples, as other translations bring out. So he's really saying, go make disciples. Then he says, baptize them. And then in verse 20, he comes out he'll be back teaching them. Now, now here is the ongoing process of discipleship, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. Now, that's the context. So which makes more sense? Is Jesus saying, I have all power. Since I have all power, I'm sending you. I want you to make disciples unto me. I want you to teach them all my commandments, and I'm going to be with you in spirit, obviously. I will be with you. Therefore, baptize in the name of three different persons. That doesn't even fit the context. But what fits the context is what we see in Acts. I have all power. Since I have all power, I'm sending you. Make disciples unto me. Teach them my commandments. I'll be with you. Baptize in my name. That's contextual. The second thing we look at is the background. And that is, and this would be when I said context, that's the literary context. That's the immediate context of the passage. But background is kind of the larger social context. Who's, who's, uh, historical context. Who's speaking? Who they're speaking to? Uh, what could the people there have known and understood? What was the speaker trying to convey? So if you look at the background, Theologically and, and uh, historically, the doctrine of the Trinity as such had never been taught. The terms three persons, Trinity, as related to the Godhead didn't actually come into play until about AD 200. So it would have been, so while we, to us, this may seem like a stumbling block, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, why would he mention three different persons? Well, that question would have never come into the minds of the people actually listening, the, the apostles, nor would have come to the mind of Matthew's original audience, the early church. They never heard of three persons. They never heard of a trinity. So while we, because of 20 centuries of tradition and creeds and councils, 
when we hear the terms Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we jump to, well, is he talking about the Trinity? <laughs> they would have never thought that way because there's never, never was teaching of a Trinity or three persons. Instead, the context, all of those early, the, the, certainly the disciples and the or, original church, they were Jewish. And their foundation was Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, the Old Testament does speak of God as Father, and Jesus in, um, you know, in his ministry spoke of God as his Father, uh, because he was, as a human being, he was the Son of God. Literally, um, he wasn't born uh, of, uh, he was born of a virgin, Mary, but he wasn't born of any human father. Instead, the Spirit of God miraculously caused his conception. So in a very real sense, God was his father. And he was also modeling a relationship that we as humans should have with God as our heavenly father. So father is as a term of the one God in relationship to us. And so when he said father, the, the, the disciples would understand that's God, the one God of heaven. But they would have also remembered what he told them a few days earlier in John 14. The Father dwells in me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So they would have understood it's in some way that Jesus was the visible manifestation of the invisible Father. Then, of course, the Son. Jesus is the Son of God. That relates to God being manifest in the flesh. The term Son of God always relates to the incarnation, to the manifestation, to the human personification of God, whom Jesus was. And uh, Galatians 4.4, 4, for example, the Son was made of a woman, made under the law. The Son is the visible image of the invisible God. And then Holy Spirit, what could they have known? Well, the Old Testament speaks of God's Spirit is God's spirit is active in creation. God's spirit is active in the lives of people. Um, they had not yet received the Holy Ghost in Matthew, but they were promised that the spirit would come. So they would have thought of the Holy Spirit as God in his personal presence, his personal action. The very first mention of the spirit of God in Genesis 1-2, the spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. So what would they have instinctively known? And, and this is described at great length, by the way, in my book, The Oneness of God. They would have thought of the Father as the one true God. The Son, and, and more specifically, Jesus had just told him, them, the Father dwells in me, and I'm the visible manifestation of the invisible Father. Son of God, they would have thought, well, that's Jesus, that the real man who's anointed by God. The Holy Spirit, that's God's presence. That's God's action. That's God himself working. Again, John 14, a few days ago, Jesus had told them the Holy Spirit is going to come. And uh, you know, he explained John 14 through 16, uh, I'm going to go away, but I will send the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But you, you already know him because he's with you, but he shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So he's, he's trying to prepare them for this different experience of the spirit where he's going to be gone, but the spirit will come. But then he explains, it's really not a different entity. It's another form. It's another experience. It's a different manifestation. But I'm. But you already know him because he's with you. So in other words, Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit will be my spirit. I'll be gone, so it'll seem like a totally different experience. But when you receive the Holy Spirit, you'll understand I'm coming back and I'm remaining with you. I will be with you. So 
what they would have known from the theological and historical context, Father, Son, Holy Spirit refers to the one God who has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Third thing we look at is the grammar. He said baptizing in the name. That's singular. So not three different names of three persons, but one name that represents the fullness of God. And we also should note that there's a difference between a name and a title. If, if I say father, that's a generic title. I'm a father. You're a father. Many people have been called father. But how do we identify if you want to talk about me exclusively? If you say father, well, that could be any number of men who happen to be in the room. But if you say David Bernard, that's me. Now, I suppose there are other David Bernards in the world, so you can have a title like, you know, Pastor Bernard, you know, General Superintendent Bernard, so you could use a title to narrow down the reference. But the point is, the name is unique. So Father, Son, and Spirit are not names but titles. So there is an implication here that we're looking for one name that would represent God's titles and manifestations. And, of course, we know from Acts 4.12 that the only saving name is the name of Jesus. So it's interesting. I've asked Trinitarians different times because the Trinitarians will usually say, yes, the name is one, because they want to say there's one God, not three gods. So they don't want to really say three different names. They want to say one name. So I say, what is the one name? And many of them will say, well, it's God. And I'll say, well, that's generic. You know, pagans could say they believe in God. How can that be the, the identifying name in which you want to be baptized? So then some will say, well, it's Yahweh, Jehovah. And I will say, well, if you're in the Old Testament, that's true. That would be the highest name given. That's the personal name, the unique name by which God distinguished himself from all the false gods. But in the New Testament, that name has been superseded by the name of Jesus, which means Jehovah Savior or Yahweh Savior. So it doesn't, doesn't deny the name of Yahweh, but it adds to it the greatest revelation of all. And that's why the name of Jesus, Acts 4.12 says, is the name of salvation, because the name of Jesus means Jehovah Savior. And of course, Philippians 2, 9 through 11 indicates the name that's been above every name is the name of Jesus. And that's the name to which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. So if you agree that there's one name, then you'll understand that God or Father or Son or Spirit are not the identifying names, but in the new covenant, it would be the name of Jesus. Okay. Now, Another thing we look at in, as a principle of interpretation is parallel passages of Scripture. So what we have here in, in Matthew 28, 19 is what is often called the Great Commission. But Mark and Luke also have the Great Commission in different terms. So in Mark's gospel, Mark 16, it says he, Jesus gives the equivalent command to go to all the world to preach the gospel to every creature. He mentions baptism. He that believes is baptized shall be saved. But then he goes on to say, in my name, you're going to cast out demons, speak in tongues, heal the sick, and so forth. And so his abiding presence will be them with them. So you see a parallel in both Matthew and Mark is speaking of preaching the gospel to everyone, making converts, baptizing them. God's presence will be with him. But the name that's mentioned Mark, in my name, Jesus says. Okay, Luke 24 also has an account of the Great Commission where Jesus says, um, go to Jerusalem and from there you will preach 
repentance and remission of sins. And then he says, wait for the promise of the Father. So again, we have a parallel. It's talking about going and preaching. Uh, while Luke doesn't explicitly mention baptism, he mentions instead repentance and remission of sins, which echoing Acts 2.38, we know baptism is involved with that. And then he talks about the power that's going to come from God, so the presence of God. So there's a parallel. But in Luke 24, he says repentance and remission of sins will be preached in, uh, and Luke records, in his name, beginning at Jerusalem, Acts 24.47. So in the three great commission accounts, they're all obviously parallel, but stated in different phrases, what would be the common name? Matthew, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Mark, my name. Luke, his name. Well, the only name that fits all three descriptions simultaneously is the name of Jesus. And when you understand, according to Colossians 2, 9, in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, then you can easily understand if you had to choose one name that represented the fullness of God, that represented God's redemptive manifestations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it would be the name of Jesus. Now, that's the parallel accounts. Now look at the fulfillment. When you look at the fulfillment in the book of Acts, there are five places where a name is mentioned as part of the baptismal formula. In every case, the identifying name is the name of Jesus. So Lord Jesus or Jesus Christ, without exception. And it's interesting, Trinitarian scholars used to try to dispute that in the past by saying, well, to be baptized in Jesus' name just means to use his authority. But it's universally recognized by church historians, number one, and New Testament scholars, number two, including Trinitarians, that the Greek of Acts is very specific. And I go through quite a bit of detail in my little book, The New Birth. Uh, not The New Birth, but In the Name of Jesus. That it the, the five accounts in Acts actually say the name of Jesus Christ was orally invoked at the time of baptism. You see this in Acts 22, 16, where Ananias tells Saul of Tarsus, later the apostle Paul, arise and wash away your sins, calling, literally invoking the name of the Lord or his, or his name, the name of Jesus. And then you also have uh, half a dozen accounts in the epistles that all speak of the name of Jesus, being buried with Christ, being baptized into Christ, um, you know, it's obvious they're referring to taking on the name of Jesus uh, in water baptism. The name is invoked. So you have this consistent witness of the entire New Testament from the historical accounts that are very specific in the book of Acts to the theological references in the epistles, all is the name of Jesus. So much so, as I just mentioned, there's a consensus of scholars of all persuasions from very conservative to very liberal and even non-Christian that the original baptismal formula always featured the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus or Jesus Christ. In fact, there's an entire scholarly book written by Lars Hartman uh, into the name of the Lord Jesus that makes this case at great length from a historical uh, and theological perspective. So with all of that in mind, um, then we ask the question, Jesus gave this command to the 12 apostles directly, not to us directly. They were able to question him. They had heard him for three years. Uh, they understood the context. If they didn't understand, they had the ability on the spot to ask questions. So they understood his command to mean invoke the name of Jesus. 
because that's what they actually did. So how can we, 2,000 years later, say we have a better understanding than they? To the contrary, we should do it. At, we should understand Jesus' words the way they did, and we should fulfill Jesus' words the way they did because they are in an authoritative position to do so. And in fact, Acts 2.42, the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That's the way the New Testament church was established. Matthew 28.20, Jesus set up the church this way. Teach your converts all the things that I've commanded them. So Jesus explicitly said, you establish the church, you make disciples, you teach them my commands. So when we do what the apostles did, when we follow the apostles' example, we're actually doing what Jesus said we should do in establishing the church. So for all these reasons, I think contextually, historically, uh, we see that Jesus was referring to baptizing in his name. And that's why the apostles did it that way. And that's why we should do it that way. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to check out Dr. David K. Bernard's books. Dr. Bernard has written more than 30 books on biblical theology and Christian living and leadership. Visit PentecostalPublishing.com and search David Bernard for a list of available titles. Enter promo code DKB10 at checkout to save 10% on your order. That's PentecostalPublishing.com, promo code DKB10 to save 10% at checkout. Thank you for listening to this episode of Apostolic Life in the 21st Century. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We also appreciate it when you share apostolic life in the 21st century with a friend or family member. And make plans to join us again next time as we look at how the Bible applies to everyday life.